Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news and analysis podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor based in our newsroom here in central Moscow. This week on the program, the Christmas and New Year's holidays were supposed to be quiet. Instead, Russia and the West were embroiled in a spy scandal. But who exactly is Paul Whelan, the alleged spy caught red-handed by the FSB? And how concerned is the West about getting him out of Russia? Paul Whelan is low value. He does not mean much to the United States. President Trump has not even come out and said a single word about his detention. We'll be joined in the studio by Amy Ferris-Rotman, a reporter for the Washington Post in Moscow who has been following the story closely. And later, after months of anticipation, the head of Orthodox Christians worldwide this weekend finally granted the Ukrainian church independence, marking a historic split from the Russian church. This religious schism, however, has distinct political overtones. But I think you're going to see a lot of pushback from Russia, and from, it'll be coming through the Russian Orthodox Church, but in some cases probably also through the Russian state. We'll be speaking to Christopher Stroop, an expert in all things Orthodox, and a regular columnist at the Moscow Times, to discuss the fallout from the decision. First up, if you ask Russia... Paul Whelan is a Western spy caught in the act in late December, supposedly with a flash drive containing the names of Russian agents. But Whelan's family says the 48-year-old former U.S. Marine was only in Russia to attend a wedding. Whether or not Whelan is a spy, his detention has thrown the tense relationship between Russia and the United States back in the spotlight right at the beginning of 2019. In the studio today is Amy Ferris-Rodman, a Washington Post reporter in Moscow who has been covering the fallout. Amy, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us in the studio today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So in the course of your reporting this story, you've spoken to several authoritative sources who have concluded that Whelan is not a spy. Why have they drawn that conclusion? So the most glaring omission, if you will, from Paul Whelan's CV is he has not worked for the U.S. government and he did not appear to be working for the U.S. government while he was in Moscow. This has made some experts, people who've dealt with espionage before to say that he's an unlikely spy because spies are usually in Moscow under diplomatic cover. Obviously, he does have the title of global security director for a U.S. auto parts manufacturer, which um, is a kind of almost too obvious title if he were going to be a spy. It's kind of textbook, um, kind of children's, children's book espionage, if you will. So it doesn't really add up. Russia is considered an incredibly high-risk environment um, in the relationship with the United States. As we've seen in the past, the U.S. has used spies who are under diplomatic cover. They come from the embassy. Paul Whelan had nothing to do with the embassy. He was here in a totally um, personal context. He was on a private trip. The Kremlin said this week that he was not being held as a pawn in a diplomatic standoff. How plausible does that sound to you? Or is Russia really actually interested in some sort of trade? I found the Kremlin's use of the word pawn interesting because it's the exact word that the British Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt had used a few days earlier Mm. once it emerged that Paul Whelan has British citizenship along with Canadian and Irish and US. So... To me, it looked like a response to Jeremy Hunt's 
um, accusation that Russia does indeed um, use people as pawns. But I think the bigger picture here is Maria Butina. Of course. Yeah, is in is in America, is in prison, is an incredibly high value asset, is someone that the Russians want to bring home as soon as possible. Her imprisonment, her guilty plea um, has been a huge sticking point between U.S.-Russian relations and it's bruised Russia considerably. The Russian foreign ministry has a meme and a picture of her as, as their... Um, as their photo on their Twitter, on their Facebook. I mean, a huge social media campaign has been launched in support of her. So it would be difficult to imagine that a swap involving Paul Whelan and perhaps Maria Butina, or indeed other Russians who are behind bars in the United States, would make sense. Also, I mean, the, yes, the Kremlin did say that they're not interested in a swap and they don't use people as pawns. We have seen them use people as pawns in the past. In a column for the Moscow Times, Mark Galliotti wrote that this whole affair has put civilians back in the crosshairs. Do you think foreigners visiting Russia or living here need to be concerned? Should we be turning down wedding invitations to Russia? Well, I always say things, are, they, look, they look worse on the outside than they are inside. We're here in Russia. And I, I think... I, I wouldn't get too alarmed yet. I don't think that this has become a hostile environment, a place where foreigners uh, risk being imprisoned for absolutely, um, ostensibly no reason. But um, it certainly has upped the game in terms of the the tense atmosphere that, that does exist here between the United States and Russia, between the West and Russia. But I, I don't think we should be turning down wedding invites um, en masse and coming to Moscow out of fear of being nabbed in our hotel rooms. But um, maybe I'm too trusting, but I, I don't think we've reached that level yet. Is there any past precedent that might uh, help us uh, understand what's likely to come next in this affair or how, how it might be resolved? I think the most important milestone in espionage between the Rus- between Russia and the US that we've seen recently was in 2010 when um, sleeper spies caught in the United States, Russian sleeper spies, uh, the elite, part of the illegals program, um, 10 of them were exchanged uh, for four Russians but who had foreign citizenships who were being held in prison in Russia. Russia was quite keen to do that trade. Um, Again, we're looking at high value versus low value asset. People I've spoken to have said that Maria Butina is incredibly high value. Paul Whelan is low value. He does not mean much to the United States. Um, President Trump has not even come out and said a single word about his detention, his arrest, his charge uh, with espionage. So I think, yeah, the Russians have the upper hand here in terms of what they may want out of this. Will the Kremlin feel intimidated by the fact that Whelan has four passports? Or is this an opportunity for the Kremlin to, to leverage four separate governments that it might not be able to in, in one sitting? Interestingly, three of the four passports that Whelan owns, Canadian, British and US, have a particularly tense relationship with Russia. Ireland um, does not, not particularly tense anyway. Um, So when these passports were kind of coming out of the woodwork, when we first we just thought he was US, then it would appear he was Canadian, then the British came out um, and consular access for him was being sought by all three. And and then Ireland. So then we came up to four. 
it struck me that it seemed almost too good to be true uh, for for the Kremlin that they had managed to find someone who ticks a lot of boxes, um, who allows them to now need to negotiate with these countries, or not negotiate, but need to speak to them about Wayland's capture and his arrest. I don't think it was... I mean, I... I have a feeling that Russian intelligence services are extremely robust. They're very good. They're world-renowned. I'm pretty sure they knew exactly who they were taking and they knew how many passports he had. It's too good to be a coincidence. Exactly, especially when you have the Kremlin involved. Amy, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Last weekend in Istanbul, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, who is the head of Orthodox Christians worldwide, signed a decree granting independence to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The move was hailed as a geopolitical victory for Ukraine over Russia, which sees itself as the arbiter of millions of Orthodox Christians in the former Soviet Union. Joining us on the line to talk about what happens next is Christopher Stroop, a religious affairs columnist who has written about the rift for the Moscow Times. Chris, explain to us, first of all, in broad terms, what happened and why Russian officials have been so rattled by this initiative. Okay, so what has just happened is that a newly independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church that is outside the jurisdiction of uh, the Moscow Patriarchate, the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, has just been created in a sense, uh, by the ecumenical patriarchate at Constantinople, where the the patriarch there, Bartholomew I, by virtue of his office, uh, is considered to be first among equals in the Orthodox world, although now Moscow rejects that interpretation. So, um, in December, uh, as part of the run-up to all of this that was happening, uh, there was a council in Ukraine that involved the three different Orthodox churches there in an attempt to unify, uh, including a couple of clergymen from the Russian Orthodox Church, although Metropolitan Hilarion, um, a major leader in the Russian Orthodox Church, declared them to be traitors. Anyway, they met in a council, elected a new leader for their Orthodox Church, uh, Metropolitan Epiphany, who then, on Orthodox Christmas, or Christmas Eve, January 6th, went to Istanbul and went to the Finar, this location of the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople, celebrated Christmas uh, and received a a document from the Patriarch there, uh, the so-called Thomas of Autocephaly, uh, which now grants official status to this church. And uh, the Russian state and the Russian Orthodox Church have vehemently opposed this. Uh, They're saying that it's schism, that they no longer recognize the authority of Constantinople, Uh, So it's a big deal. In terms of logistics, what kind of impact will this actually have on the ground? Let's say I'm an Orthodox believer in Ukraine. How is this going to impact on my life? Well, it kind of depends on what sort of Orthodox believer in Ukraine you are. And one way or another, it's going to be quite messy. I mean, it would also depend on where you live. Um, If you're someone who is sympathetic to Ukrainian uh, sovereignty, Ukrainian national aspirations, and you think it's it's a good thing since Ukraine is a uh, a sovereign nation and it has its own culture and it's distinct from from Russia, so you think it's a good thing to have a church that's independent from Russia. If your local parish is not uh, a part of this new Ukrainian Orthodox Church, maybe you'll try to find one that is, or maybe you'll try to see if you can get enough people in that parish to sort of vote on a possible change. But I think you're going to see 
a lot of pushback from uh, from Russia, and from it'll be coming through the Russian Orthodox Church, but in some cases probably also through the Russian state, uh, because they'll try to use the property that they own. And so parishes that belong to the Russian Orthodox Church, Moscow Patriarchate, outside Russia are owned by the, the Russian state. So there's going to be property disputes. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly that's that's going to happen. And it would be great if, you know, everyone could come to the negotiating table in good faith and perhaps Ukraine could uh, pay some sort of compensation for the property just uh, so everything seems above board. Although on the other hand, it's kind of revolting to think about that when Moscow has just annexed massive amounts of territory from Ukraine and is still uh, waging this hybrid war in eastern Ukraine. And for those reasons, of course, something like that kind of scenario where they would just kind of maybe hash this out is not going to happen. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be complicated, and I think things will likely be ugly at the local level for a while. How do you think Russia is likely to respond to the decision taken in Istanbul this weekend? Is there anything the Russian Orthodox Church could do to punish Ukraine? Uh, we're also seeing some very sharp statements from uh, Russian church leaders, Russian political leaders, um, even weird kind of Soviet-style tit-for-tat kind of stuff. So now, you know, Russia's been declaring that where the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople has parishes uh, outside of its geographic space in that little corner of Istanbul, uh, Russia will try to open uh, Russian Orthodox parishes as well, which is really quite bizarre. (laughs) What do you think is the best case for resolution here? How do you see this all playing out? It's very hard to say at this point, because it it seems that these, these tensions that are really at a boiling point are going to remain high for a long time. Uh, I think that until you have uh, the Kremlin willing to negotiate with a, with a post-Maidan Ukrainian government, um, come to the negotiating table in, in good faith, it, it just seems unlikely that anything is going to be resolved. And so you have sort of another post-Soviet frozen conflict here, or sort of quasi-frozen. And uh, I guess it's just a question of when it will heat up and when it will cool down. But uh, how do we resolve this situation? It honestly may be decades before we have any clear resolution. When it comes to the the church itself, this is an important moral victory for Ukraine. uh, And it's one that I I sympathize with. And... um, I don't think it necessarily makes things worse in the medium to long term in terms of these tensions because they were going to be there anyway. And looking to the long term, I think it, it does matter as, as a victory for uh, simply the whole idea of a Ukrainian nation uh, existing and charting its own course uh, without following orders from Moscow. That's That's important. But the pushback from Moscow is going to keep tensions high for the foreseeable future. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Christopher. Yeah, take care. And to finish off, did you know that spending time on your smartphone could actually be emboldening the Antichrist? Well, neither did we. That is, until the head of Russia's Orthodox Church gave a special interview over the holidays to state-run media. Patriarch Kirill said that he wasn't totally against gadgets, but the fact that users were giving up so much information about themselves meant they were vulnerable to being manipulated or controlled by outside forces. 
here's what he said. The Antichrist is a personality that will be at the head of the World Wide Web, controlling the entire human race. So take heed, everyone, and happy scrolling. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Brown, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Have a good weekend, and join us next week on From Russia with News. Thank you.